Hello, dear friends. Greg Kokel here at Stand to Reason, and uh, thank you for joining me here. I'm in northern Wisconsin um, working hard at a book that I hope to finish by the end of the month. I'm looking out the window, and just a few moments ago, I wanted to say a flock of deer went by, but that's not exactly how the right way to characterize it. There must have been six or seven of them, a bunch of little bambies that were mixed in. Uh, a herd, a itty-bitty herd of deer went by, and uh, this town is absolutely filled, chock-full with deer. I understand that the reason they're in town is because there's wolves out there now, and if they get too far away from town, they're vulnerable to the wolves. Anyway, it's nice to see them. You just got to be careful when you're driving around, especially at night. Uh, just a reminder, we are in our August project called Be One of the 100. We are recruiting, seeking to recruit 100 new strategic partners for standard reason. And uh, you have heard many times people call in, say, I'm a strategic partner. I heard it, uh, I was at in the last week and a half, I was at three or four different locations and, uh, and number, a number of people came up to me and said, Hey, thanks for what you're doing. We're strategic partners. It's great to see the look on their face that they feel like they belong to Stand to Reason. They're benefiting from Stand to Reason, but they're also contributing to STR in a way that helps so many other people. A strategic partner is somebody who has committed a certain amount, a set amount, their decision every single month to send in to stand a reason, be a strategic partner to provide a backbone for us financially. And uh, they are the ones we can always count on. And the strategic partners make our uh, operation makes Santa Reason work and helps us to do all the things that we're able to do with the radio shows and the realities. 10,000 last year, 10,000 students in our six locations around the country for reality. We expect even more this year starting in actually a couple of weeks now. Um, the last full weekend of September, I don't have the dates in front of me for the reality here in Southern California. And we're looking at 3,000 people showing up uh, at that reality. And at the moment, no restrictions from the state on attendance like we had last year. But anyway, that's one of the things. Or the STRU or the red pen logics or the uh all of the you know the, all the things that we're able to accomplish with our podcasts and our website and our articles and everything this is a donor supported ministry and the most important type of donor for us is is the one who is a regular strategic partner uh, strategic partners are their own community they have special facebook events and access to that they have uh, a special additional 10 percent discount on uh, anything that they purchase in the uh, str store and if you decide to become a strategic partner this month you're not one you've been thinking about it this is the month to do it we're looking for the 100 this month we challenge you to be one of those hundred, and uh, so far I think we have thirty-seven. We're so we're a third of the month in, and we're a third of the way there. Um, we have a website for you to go to, and last time I had a hard time finding it on my paperwork, and now I'm doing the same thing. Where is that? Here it is. str.org forward slash partner. That's str.org forward slash partner, and for this month. For the Be One of the 100 month, when you pledge a monthly gift of $25 or more, we're going to send you the entire 21-22 reality conference season. I shouldn't say season. 
the conference. We've had it in six locations. You're not going to get all six. You're going to get one <laughs> characterization of that. Not sure which one it is. But uh, this one was titled Chaos to Clarity, and it was magnificent. It was like the best one we've had. We've now 15 years almost with these events, and it was top-notch. You'll love it. And we'll also send you a reality T-shirt from that particular event. Just go to str.org forward slash partner, follow all the prompts, and you can become one of the 100 strategic partners for this month. Now, when I was gone, while I was gone, I am gone. I'm here. And uh, I read a couple of pieces about our woke culture, and I kind of want to give a hat tip here to a, a soccer player. Her name is, I think it's pronounced Jaylene Daniels. And she is a high-quality professional women's soccer defender. She plays in defense, apparently. And she plays for a team called the North Carolina Courage. Um, I think it's interesting that's the name of her team because she is the one who has displayed courage in that team, not the leadership. Apparently, um, just recently, this is an AP story published in the Washington Post from July 30th, so it's a little more than a week ago. But um, Daniels refused Well, here's what it says. Refused to play Friday night when the team celebrated Pride Night and wore juries to support the LGBTQ community. Now, I don't think that's what happened. She didn't refuse to play. I actually read a number of stories, and depending on who you read, they put it in different ways, okay? Um she didn't refuse to play because the team was celebrating the LGBTQ community that night. Which, by the way, isn't this doesn't it strike you as a little odd that there is a whole team that is taking a night, a professional sports team that is taking a night as a team to celebrate a group based on their sexual appetites. When else is anything like this done? I forget about sexual appetites. Any other particular thing, our team is going to celebrate this tonight. I mean, sometimes it's cancer awareness or something like that, but celebrate the LGBTQ community? Uh, And I'm not speaking disparagingly of the community at this point. I'm just simply saying, isn't that odd? Well, it's not odd. When you stand apart and stand aside, it does seem peculiar, but given the way the culture has gone, no, it's not odd at all. What is unusual is when someone says no, and that's what uh, Jaylene Daniels did. She didn't say no to playing, as far as I could tell. She said no to wearing the jersey. The jersey that she would wear that would be celebrating Pride night. She said, no, I can't wear that. Why? She's a Christian. And before God, it would not be the right thing to do. And so what they did is they removed her from the roster. As far as I can tell, she did not refuse to play. She simply refused to wear the jersey. And because she wouldn't wear the jersey, they didn't let her play. 
So I guess there's a way you could express it and be kind of quasi-accurate by saying she refused to play because a refusal of the jersey, which was required to play, is a de facto refusal to play. But she wasn't refusing to play in the event. She just didn't want to wear the jersey. And so they they benched her. Jaylene will not be rostered tonight as she has made the decision to not wear our pride jersey. That's the state official statement. Notice there the precision. She will not be rostered. That is, she won't be put on the roster because she made a decision not to wear our pride jersey. While we're disappointed with her choice, we respect her right to make that decision for herself. Okay, think about that last statement. We're disappointed with her choice. Okay, I get that. While we're disappointed with her choice, we respect her right to make that decision for herself. They didn't respect her right. They can't make a decision for her, obviously. She's got to do it. So there's no respect at all if she just does it. Respect is the way you act towards the person making the decision. And the way she acted, they acted towards her was to bench her. That's not respecting her right. All of that is just faldera. That's just wordplay. That's just uh, propaganda. We respect her right. It kind of reminds me of the people who used to say, we support our soldiers. We just don't support the war. Well, wait a minute. It's the soldiers that are given their life in the battle. How can you say you support the soldiers if what they are doing is something you disagree with? Now, maybe that's not such a good parallel, but you get my point here. We respect her right to make that decision. Um, the coach, Sean Hahas, said that after the game against the Spirit, which they tied 3-3 three to three without Daniel's help, She's a great player from what I could find out. Anyway, uh, he wanted to make sure the LGBTQ players on the team were celebrated and that Daniel's decision wasn't a distraction. We want to make sure everybody's really happy, happy, happy. I hope you weren't just distracted by the fact that this young lady did not want to wear the pride thing and therefore we benched her. Are you feeling okay? Really, isn't this infantilizing, friends? I mean, treating adults like that, like their day is going to be spoiled, even though they're celebrating pride because there was one person who said, sorry, I can't do this. All right, so one other thing I want to offer, and that is um, Daniel's own comment regarding her attitude with her team, and here's what she said. I remain committed to my faith and my desire for people to know that my love for them isn't based on their belief system or sexuality. What a contrast, right? My love for them, my respect for them, my my friendship with them, my acceptance of them, fill in the blank, this is what she's talking about, isn't based on their belief system or their sexuality. 
Would that the others had treated her the same, with the same grace and the same integrity. I pray and firmly believe that my teammates know how much I cherish them, respect them, and love them. It says Daniels, 29, made eight appearances with the national team. She helped the courage. Once again, the name. She's the courage, not the team. She helped the courage win the NWSL titles. Is that National Women's Soccer League? In 2018 and 2019, before stepping away from the game for the birth of her daughter. Now her daughter's a little older. She's back in the game and making her contribution, but she won't wear the uniform. So out of respect for her view, she got benched. Well, good for you and Jaylene, and I hope there are many, many, many more people who will follow the example that you have set. You refuse to compromise, but you do it with grace and honor and dignity, even though you weren't treated that way yourself. And by the way, there's going to be a lot more of this. The the solution as we face these things as Christians, as she's doing them as a Christian, but it's not just Christians. People are being bullied. People of all convictions are being bullied into going along with all kinds of nonsense. Now, it may be important to the others who are involved in that. The nonsense is the way they're being treated is, I guess, what I'm saying. They're being... People have lifestyles. They have convictions. They have ideas. Okay, fine. Then you can have those. But why bully those people who don't share those things, especially when they're as dignified in not sharing them as Jaylene Daniels is in the way she did this? So how do we deal with this? We live not by lies. There's a book by that title. It's worth reading. Rod Dreher. Haven't had him on the show yet. I ought to. I think we were talked about it. But that line comes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn and an essay that he wrote in 1973 before he was ejected from the Soviet Union, having won the Nobel Prize, uh, yeah, the Nobel Prize for exposing the gulag system of the Soviets, a system that he was imprisoned in for 10 years as a Christian. And as he left, he wrote a piece that said, live not by lies. That's his advice for Christians suffering under totalitarian regimes. And this is what's happening in our country more and more. I wrote about this a lot last year. And those who followed Solid Grounds, you you read them. And the case that I made, the concern that I raised. Those who didn't, you can go back there. Read those Solid Grounds at str.org. Starting with the January one. It's called Iron Curtain Diary. I was behind the Iron Curtain in 1976. For five and a half weeks, working with Christians who are suffering, I tell the story in that piece. And then subsequent pieces, I talk about freedom failing, fading and how authoritarianism is overtaking from the top and also from, that's like vertical from the government and also horizontally from cultural groups like Google and Facebook and Twitter at all. Silencing dissent. 
By the way, this is a, a tell, you know. You know what a tell is. That's like a little indicator. Card players have tells when they're bluffing. If you can find them, it's good. It's an indicator. Here's the tell. The tell is when opposition is silenced by force, you know that the opposition does not have a solid point of view because they can't defend it in the normal ways. Public discourse, freedom of speech, they have to defend it by silencing the opposition. The more you see the attempts to silence, that's the tell that the view that is being uh, preferred is not a good one, can't be defended. Watch for that. But what do we do? We have to stand up. We have to say no. We have to say, I can't live by that lie. I won't live by that lie. And I shouldn't have to. I don't know why employers feel it's appropriate for them to make uh, their people accept their politics as a condition of employment. But that's what's going on. That's the woke culture. Anyway, I'm just glad for Daniels and uh, for her courage and her grace. And that's the example that we want to follow. Courage and grace. Courage and grace. As we say no to things we think are not sound, are not good, are not moral. Okay, let's, uh, let's take a break and uh, come back with questions on Stand to Reason. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Well, I'm disappointed. I had a caller on board with an interesting either question or challenge. I'm not exactly sure where the where the issue is coming from, but uh, he disappeared. But I remember what it was. So um, there it is. Um, okay, Amy's just helping me out here uh, on the screen. Challenge from a Jewish friend. Even if Jesus was resurrected, so what? How do we know it wasn't the devil 
who raised him. Okay, there was a challenge to them. And how do we know it wasn't the devil who raised them? I, this, I, I want to take this seriously. I will take it seriously, but it, it, it bothers me just a little bit. Um, oh, you had dinner with your wife last night? How do we know it was an alien who looked like your wife? How do we know? Do you see that? To me, this challenge is in that category. It's kind of silly. Now, I can give it a serious answer. Um, The first one is, why, even if Jesus was resurrected, so what? Okay. Uh, First of all, that, that by itself is a little bit odd. Somebody rose from the dead, even if he really rose from the dead. So let's just picture this. Um, the challenger goes to a funeral uh, during the wake, sees the body in repose. The body is stone cold dead, obviously. The coffin is closed. They take it to the cemetery. It's lowered into the hole six feet under. Dirt is piled on top. They're saying their parting words when there's an explosion coming out of the ground. The dirt flies away. The top of the coffin flies off. And the person in the coffin gets up, crawls, climbs out of the hole and stands in front of you. Okay, that's a resurrection. And the individual with this challenge, who's just witnessed this, says, so what? So what? Maybe the devil did it. You can't just say, really, please, even if Jesus was resurrected, so what? It's not a so what. It's an unbelievable thing. It's like, O-M-G, and in this case, the G would be God. Oh, my God. Because Paul said, uh, proven to be, demonstrated to be the Son of God, which is a divine title, by the resurrection. That's in Romans chapter 1. So this resurrection seemed to indicate something. Now, where did the power come from or Put another way, who was it that raised Jesus? We have this unimaginable thing, event happening. There he is. He who is dead is alive. We can't say, so what? That's shallow. Let's just acknowledge that, okay? But I think it is fair to say, okay, well, what is the what caused it? I think it's a little silly to say the devil caused it, okay? For a number of reasons. First of all, in a question like this, you always want to ask, what is the reason you would think that the devil might have caused it? If there is no good reason to think that the devil might be the cause, then there's no good reason to posit that as a possibility. Pretty straightforward, right? So... I don't think the devil was the cause. No reason to think so, okay? Um, Secondly, Jesus predicted his own resurrection actually a number of times. Once he talked about the temple being destroyed. They said, what sign will you give that shows that you have authority 
Oh, I'm sorry. He cleansed the temple. This is early in his ministry. And he, he was challenged and asked, by what authority do you do this? And he said, tear the temple down and I will raise it up in three days. Now, this is a mysterious statement, but the disciples realized later that he was speaking of the temple of his body. And towards the end of his ministry with the disciples, as he was discipling them, the first half of his ministry is pretty popular. Then in John 6, you have this great turning away at the Bread of Life discourse, and then Jesus spent more time privately discipling his followers to follow after him, complete his mission, disciple others, and then he started speaking to them plainly about being resurrected from the dead and uh, in claiming this is something he was going to do. Remember, I will raise this up. He also says, no sign shall be given to you but the sign of Jonah, who three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So there are many places where Jesus predicted this event. And then when he rose from the dead, what is the most reasonable conclusion that one would come to as to the cause. Well, since he predicted that he would do it, he probably is the one who did it when it happened. It's not a so what. It's oh my God, OMG. That to me sounds like the most reasonable response to say, well, so what? Maybe the devil raised him. Really? Does this help the devil? How does this help the devil's cause? Didn't help the devil. Destroyed the devil. Now, again, that you have to follow the, the Christian understanding of how this all works together, but that's the context in which it's being done. You, you, you don't say, well, there, if there was a resurrection, okay, so what? Because the resurrection is built into the larger Christian enterprise. And in the larger Christian enterprise verified by the resurrection, the devil plays a very particular role. And the resurrection did not help him. (laughs) It hurt him, okay? So anyway, there's my answer. And by the way, I think that kind of answer should be obvious. I remember um, with a fairly young Christian who was raising some questions, um, and 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 I was with her and J.P. Moreland, and the question of doubt came up, that it's possible to doubt something about this, that, or the other thing, and I can't remember the details. Um, what J.P. said, though, really stuck with me. And it was essentially the point I was just making a moment ago. And so this general point is something that will hopefully will stick with you and will be useful when challenges like this are raised. Just because something is possible, this doubt, for example, the circumstance of the doubt, or it's possible that the devil raised Jesus from the dead, just because something is possible does not mean that we have any good reason to believe it's actual. It really happened. Just because it's possible doesn't mean it's reasonable to believe it's so. 
So we want to put possibilities in their proper place. Lots of things are possible. The question is not just is it possible, but is it is it probable? Is it likely? <laughs> is it the best explanation for the way things are? It's the way I like to put these kinds of issues. If it's possible but not probable and certainly not likely given all the details, then it's probably not the best explanation. And we should go looking for a better explanation given the details and the facts as we know them. And, of course, that's easy. Uh, with regards to the resurrection, if, in fact, it did happen as was stipulated in the question. All right. Uh, now, let's uh, let's take some questions here from um, our, our recorded questions, and we've talked about this in the past. Um, and let me see what I have here, and, and I'll have my team. Um, let's see. Let's take Mark's comment, uh, question about the Holy Spirit and uh, passages of the Bible. Here's Mark. Hi, Mr. Kokel. I recently discovered your book, Tactics, and subsequently your website and podcast. They have positively impacted my confidence in conversations with my peers and strangers. So mm. thank you so much for what mm. you do. Welcome. Your definition of prescriptive and descriptive passages in the Bible has been especially helpful to me. My question is this. Can or does the Holy Spirit use descriptive passages as opposed to prescriptive to affirm a decision. My wife and I have been talking about moving to a specific place for several years, but now that we're actually in the process of moving, we've felt more anxiety, less conviction. I've been praying for clarity and peace. My daily devotions led me to read Genesis chapter 46 this morning, and verse 3 to 4, quote unquote, spoke to me. Did the Lord lead me to this, or am I subconsciously trying to fit scripture into what I want it to be? Well, that's a fabulous question, and it's uh, one that a lot of people ask me, or rather ask themselves, when they're seeking to make decisions about something important in their life. And uh, Mark's question, and the way he's approaching this, seems to presume, and uh, since we can't talk together about this, I'm not entirely sure, but it seems to presume that that the Holy Spirit is one that that in a certain sense dictates these particular decisions, like where we're supposed to live and what job we take and maybe who we're supposed to marry. This is up to God to decide, and it's up to us to figure out what God has decided before we can decide and choose what God has already chosen for us, that kind of thing. We call this finding God's will for our life. It's standard operating procedure among massive numbers of evangelicals. Now, I've taken exception with this on biblical grounds because I don't think this is what the Bible teaches. I don't think the Bible teaches that God kind of makes these decisions for us and then, um, and then you know, drops little hints along the way. One of those hints um, could be a passage of Scripture that when read in a certain sense in isolation with the issue of guidance— in mind or in view that the person who's reading has is dealing with sometimes those things feel like there's the holy spirit kind of giving you a nudge or direction and this is the question that mark is raising in this circumstance now he makes the distinction between prescript and descriptive prescriptive is when scripture tells us we ought to do something 
you know, be holy as I am holy. Okay, that's called prescriptive. Think of it like a prescription. You know, you go to the store, you go to uh, CVS, drugs, whatever, you get prescription. So you take this thing you're told to take, and then it makes you better, okay? Prescriptive things are things we're supposed to do so we get better, gooder, so to speak. They're morally obligatory, all right? Descriptive are different. Descriptive is simply a description of something that took place. And the question that Mark is asking is a really important question is, when it comes to descriptive scriptures, as opposed to prescriptive, which tell us what to do, does the Holy Spirit sometimes take a mere description of something that happens and use that to tell us something to do? Okay, and then he uh, referenced Genesis 46 Verses 3 and 4. So I don't even know what they say, but I will read them. Oh, 46. So that uh, we're all on the same page here. <clears throat> and he said, I am God. I'm just reading the verses. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again and Joseph with close your eyes. So this is Jacob, now called Israel, that God is speaking to here. Okay. Uh, and I will go down. Let's see. Yeah, that's three or four. And I will go down and uh, bring you up, and Joseph will close your eyes. Now, the general thing here is God is saying you're looking at a decision to move somewhere else, and don't worry about it. I'm in this for you. This is, I, I'm, do it, <laughs> and I'll take care of things. So Mark's question is, when I read that and it resonated with me, was that God telling me the same thing? A couple of observations. Well, first of all, it could be telling him the same thing unless he's thinking about moving to Egypt. Okay? Um, you have to— really generalize the concept of this passage in order to apply it to Mark's circumstance. I don't think he's moving to Egypt. And there are other things that are said, too. Um, I will make you a great nation there. Is this something that we are to take, though it's a promise to Israel, Jacob, take as an application of what God is going to do? I want you to go here, and I'm going to do this for you when you do that. And, by the way, um, not only will I go down with you to Egypt, I will also surely bring you up again. Hmm. Bring you up again. Well, that means back to Canaan, right? The place that God had given them, that land. Well, that doesn't happen for, you know, 400 years. And Joseph will close your eyes, so you're going to die. I, do you see there's all kinds of details in there? that we have to ignore as being relevant to the circumstance that Mark is asking about and overgeneralize the passage to just being the Holy Spirit in a certain sense communicating through this verse that Mark should go and move where he's a little uncomfortable about moving. God's saying, don't worry, I'm with you. So is that a legitimate way to read the text? And the answer is no. It's not. And there's a couple of reasons for this. I actually have a whole talk about this. It's called Never Read a Bible Verse. Um, but 
one of the reasons is that it's clear from Scripture that God intends a particular meaning when he inspires the word. And I get this from Second Peter chapter 1. It says that no Scripture is a matter of no, no word of no word of prophecy or scripture, whatever how David how Peter puts it, is is a matter of one's own interpretation. Um, for no prophecy was given by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay, so here's the point: Does that mean we don't interpret? No, we all have to interpret anything. You have to interpret what I'm saying right now. So interpretation is a task that we all have a responsibility to do or else communication doesn't happen. He isn't saying that. If you notice the parallelism, he said it isn't a matter of human uh, of, of individual interpretation because because it's the prophecy is not an act of human will. The point is it's not up to us to take these words to mean whatever but rather to take these words as God's words with a particular meaning he's given for the circumstance. So strictly speaking, in Bible verses, there's one meaning. God has it in mind, and he's using the inspired writers to communicate that meaning, which is a function of his will and his effort and his purpose in communicating, and is not a function of human agency or mere human agency. That's why it's not up to us. That's the point that he's making there. What's interesting is the, that's the end of chapter 1 of Second Peter. <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 1, is significant. Keep in mind that the, chapter, the verse numbers weren't in the original, and the chapter breaks weren't in the original. The next verse says, For false, false teachers and false prophets arose among the people. Okay, so there's a corrective here, or maybe a a protective that, I don't have the verse in front of me, that's why I'm just paraphrasing a little bit, but that Peter is offering. He's saying, look it, when we have prophecy and scripture, we have men who have written it for our benefit, but it was God who is the ultimate author to communicate something very particular, and it's not up to us to just bend and twist and make it into whatever we want. It's up to us to figure out what God actually says. So I know what God is saying in this Genesis 46 passage. Um, He is talking about something particular that he is going to do in the life of Jacob here called Israel. And to make this move, right? It has nothing to do with the circumstances that Mark is facing. A difficulty applicationally of this for Mark is that why this verse and not any other one that makes some other suggestion like don't go? Now, I guess you could say, well, because my spirit kind of resonated with this verse and didn't resonate with others but there's do you realize that there's no control on that it's there it's our spirits that resonate with one or the other but we haven't been given any permission to take counsel from our spirit resonating with some verse to add to it some meaning that was not originally intended so i know that there's a a strong emphasis in lots of circles to kind of go with this kind of thing. Um, But it's an abuse of Scripture. 
and it causes, causes all kinds of applicational problems. Now, I do have some counsel for Mark on this, and that is that um, if he has apprehensions about moving, it may not it may not be that God. Well, I guess there's some question. Why does he have the apprehension? Is that God telling him to go or not to go? Is that where that's coming from? And the verse seems to maybe indicate that in spite of apprehension, still go. Yeah, I don't think that's a good way of judging your apprehensions. I don't think you need to ask the question, what is the source? Is this God or is this me or is this the devil that's making me feel this way? I think you have to look at the nature of the apprehension. You have to look, okay— I'm not feeling right about this for some reason. Hmm. Why? What's wrong with – what is it about this decision that's making me feel uncomfortable? Now, this is where, in his case, with his wife, he can talk about these things a little bit and with uh, – he can pray about it, ask for wisdom. But I don't think the prayer should be, are you telling me kind of subtly to go? Are you trying to speak to me in this way through my feelings or whatever? I think take counsel of the feelings. Incidentally, God doesn't try anything. Okay, he never tries to speak to anybody. God's not a he wannabe. He's a bee. <laughs> he does what he intends to accomplish. He does it and accomplishes it. He doesn't try. He doesn't attempt. Okay, if he wants to communicate something, he's going to do it. And biblically speaking, this happens in a clear fashion. Even in the Old Testament, there's this example, Genesis 46. Incidentally, it says, God spoke to Israel in a vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, etc. All right? And so God's going to be clear. This is a supernatural revelation. Okay? It's not kind of a hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Um, secondly, um, it, it, it might be that there is something just not right about the decision. And maybe that's the time to say, okay, let's slow down and check it out. I think if a person feels really bad about making some decision, maybe it's just not the right decision for them. Uh, supernatural things aside, maybe this isn't the right time. Maybe there, maybe there's something else that you might be subconsciously aware of, but but it's not right on top. And this is where conversing with somebody else will help. Keep in mind, by the way, every major decision— Virtually every major decision is accompanied with some fear and trembling, and moving is a good example. Having children, getting married, well, th these are all big decisions. And so it's not unusual to have second thoughts about them. I would not try to read any divine hints into the second, having the second thoughts. I certainly would not read divine hints into a verse that really speaks to something entirely different. I do not think God speaks that way. That that would be an abuse of his own word by him. So um, I would slow down and try to think this issue through, Mark, a little bit more carefully and see if there's something else that you may be subconsciously aware of but haven't put your finger on it yet. And your wife and friends and families and pastors and other people that God has brought into our circles to be counselors to us can help in that. This is why Proverbs said, is the abundance of counselors, there is victory. Okay? We want help here. And, and 
hopefully I'm one of those counselors right now, uh, giving the help to Mark. And I hope it was helpful. All right, let's take a break, and we'll come back with more questions when I return. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, and our newest apologist, John Noyes, are available, both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule them today. Our speakers can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read their bios and learn more about the topics they cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, or John today. When you choose to support Stand to Reason with a monthly gift of $10 or more, you become a strategic partner in the work of equipping Christian ambassadors. Your monthly commitment makes you a part of a special group, helping STR train Christians to confidently and graciously defend their convictions. Your monthly gift helps us plan and manage STR's resources and provides consistent support to aid our ongoing work. As our thanks for your partnership, we have created some benefits to express our gratitude, like a 10% discount in our online store, access to a private Facebook group, and more. To become a strategic partner, visit str.org donate. Click How Often Will You Donate and choose Monthly. For personal assistance, you can email oceanwilson at ocean at str.org. All righty, going back to our um, uh, recorded calls here, I'm looking at a couple of different things. I got a verse that I have to look up too, so uh, that would be Acts 30, 31. Let me have a, what? 17, 30, 31. There is no X 30. 30 and 31. Okay, I see it. So let's, team, let's hear from Nancy Thornton and what her question is. I have a question about something I read on social media regarding Christians and their involvement in politics. The statement seems to open the way to arbitrary law, but I don't know quite how to address it. Here is the statement. Christians cannot expect non-believers and their cultures to conform to Christian values before they have been made new in Christ. I hear this kind of thing often and would like to hear your take on it. And also, how you think this relates to Acts 17, 30, and 31. Thank you very much, Greg. And thank you, Nancy. Uh, it's a great question. Um, although I'm not sure how Acts fits into this question. I'll read the verse. Uh, chapter 17, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, this, by the way, is um, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. Okay. And he's laid out some details in his sermon, and then he says in verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That means turn, (laughs) have a different way of looking at things, and he's just been condemning idolatry essentially in a very 
sensitive way, culturally sensitive way, and he's calling them to Christ. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That was the end of the sermon, because once they heard about raising from the dead, they all got bugged and scoffed, although some did believe and followed. So it's not clear to me how that passage relates to what you, um, the concern that you raised, Nancy, um, although I do have something to say about the concern, a lot, actually. Um, And just to uh, repeat the concern, Christians can't expect non-believers and their cultures to conform to Christian values before they have been made new in Christ. So the answer to that, uh, hmm, how could I put this? Um, Yes, Christians can expect people to conform, non-believers, to conform their cultures and values to Christian values that at least in some regard. Now, this needs to be qualified. We have a law. It says, thou shalt not murder. Okay, that's a homicide statute in every state. But it's the same thing that's part of Christian values. But if people don't believe in Christian values, then maybe they shouldn't be told not to murder because that's imposing our values on them. Okay, you see the problem, of course. The the law is meant to impose moral values, uh, appropriate moral values, or I should say moral values. Let me, I'm trying, now I want to back up and think of the best way to put this. So let me re, re, let me rephrase this. Uh, not every immoral thing should be made illegal. But lots of immoral things ought to be made illegal because if they weren't made illegal, in other words, if there wasn't a government force that was compelling people not to do certain things they they ought not do, then people would do them. And so I understand the whole concept of people being renewed and becoming new creatures and transformed as people by the Holy Spirit through the new birth. And that makes big changes, which is great. But we can't expect, well, that's certainly not going to happen to everybody. And so how do you keep people from doing the bad things that they still want to do because they're not regenerate? You threaten them with punishment. That's biblical. Governments are for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do right. Now, I have said many times something similar to this, but I meant it in a very restricted fashion. That is, we can't expect non-Christians to live by Christian morality, generally speaking. So we don't expect non-Christians not to have sex outside of marriage. We hope that they don't. We know when they do, it's destructive for culture. But whether that should be made illegal is a different kind of question. It's also our Christian values that we shouldn't murder. Now, that's something much more weighty of a concern, and therefore we use government power to pass laws to keep people from murdering by threatening them with violence against them if they do. 
Is that our Christian value? Yes. Are we forcing unregenerate people to live by that? We're trying to. But that's completely appropriate. That is an appropriate role of government. Now, where do you draw that line? That's a, a question of policy. When does the, the, the hand of government get so heavy that it is, it is um, inappropriately encroaching on, on, on liberty and freedom? Well, that if we have liberty and freedom, we're going to do things that are wrong. But the things that we do that are wrong are not necessarily so injurious to society that it requires society to step in and make it actionable. Take lying, for example. Lying is not illegal with one exception. Okay? You can lie to people all day long. You're not going to get thrown in jail unless you lie under oath. If you lie under oath, big problem. <clears throat> and uh, the reason that the government – uh, punishes lying under oath. I'm just thinking of different ways to put it. The reason they punish lying under oath is because this ability to give an oath and then be counted on to tell the truth um, lays at the foundation of the fabric of our legal system. Okay? That's why we got to make sure people do that. And if they don't, we catch them, we're going to punish them. All right? So that has grave consequences if we tell a lie under those circumstances, okay? So generally speaking here, I'm with you in one sense, and I'm not with you in another sense. Like I said, many times I've made the comment <clears throat> that, um, that we should not force Christians or expect Christians to live by Christian values, but that's up to a point. When Christian values, biblical values, also reflect on cultural concerns that have grave consequences for people, well, then we pass laws about it. It used to be illegal. Let's see. I'm trying to remember back. When I was a kid, divorce was divorce was uh, was divorce numbers were very low, and that's because you had to you had to have um, you had to go to court. And have a judge agree that you could get divorced. Now, I'm not going to argue one way or another whether that was the best policy, but the point is there was a drift in cultural sensibilities about that, and uh, and so now it's really easy to get a divorce called no fault divorce, and it seems to be pretty clear that this has not been good for society. All right. And it might have been better if there were more restrictions. Now, divorce and remarriage and all of that stuff, this certainly falls under Christian ethics. But are, they are Christian ethics that have to do with the health of culture as well. And it might very well be that we have drifted way over in the side of liberty and don't punish certain things that would be better that we did inveigh by law against. It might be better for our culture if we did that. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's the case uh, for many things, but the it's actually gotten a lot worse. It's it's not just the it's not just the things that we don't punish. Now it's things that we do punish that shouldn't be punished. Government is there for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, and in many ways, our government is doing just the opposite. It is there for the punishment of those who do right and for the praise of those who do wrong. Gay 
Pride Week is an example of that. If people want to have their personal parades, fine. But the government and the military and everybody that, you know, spending a whole month celebrating all of that? For what purpose? It certainly doesn't have anything to do with the military doing its job well. I mean, live and let live. What happened to that? No, not anymore. Now we have to celebrate that. And it reminds me, uh, I'm just using that as one example. It reminds me of the end of Romans where it talks about all of these things, including sexual things, in particular homosexuality, that were offensive to God and a disruption, distortion of God's purposes. And then a whole bunch of other things too, a rogue's list of vice. And at the end it says, not only do they do these things, but they give hearty approval to those who do them. So that's what's happened. Now the whole thing is upside down. I think, yes, in a fashion, to a degree, we don't force our values on other people, live and let live, even if what they're doing is wrong, according to our convictions from Scripture. But there's a point in which we have to say, no, wait a minute. These things are so wrong, they're disruptive society, they're injurious to other people in society, and we inveigh against them with laws and threat of punishment. So thank you so much for that. Nancy Thornton, and that's it for the show today. Thank you for being a part of it. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.